Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Alaska's temperatures are 16 degrees above normal in December, and that was followed up by the warmest day Alaska ever saw in January. Arctic sea ice is at an all-time low. We'll talk about the dangers, our dangers of our changing climate. A new children's book addresses the issue of displacement. We'll find out about Adriana's Angels, the story of a girl fleeing violence in Colombia. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Warm temperatures in Alaska this year have been lethal. The Associated Press reports that the warmth opened up dangerous gaps in frozen rivers that residents use to travel from village to village and to hunting grounds since there are no roads there in Alaska in some parts. And a man died New Year's Eve after he and five family members traveling on a snowmobile and sled fell into a gaping hole. The other members of his family survived. Let's talk about our changing climate now with Dr. Joseph Rahm. He's a physicist, a climate expert, and he is editor of the Think Progress blog, climateprogress.org. Thanks a lot for joining us, Dr. Joseph Rahm. I've enjoyed climateprogress.org for many years. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, You know, I was, we were kind of curious about the December temperatures and you, you wrote about this uh, on the blog and um, it, did it get enough attention? It seems to be so dramatic, the, the temperature change in Alaska. And most people are worried about all the cold it pushed down here. But um, it, it really seemed like an astounding story. Yes, well, the planet is warming because of, of human-created uh, 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 carbon pollution, burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas. And uh, NASA and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said, uh, just last week, that the five hottest years on Earth have all occurred since 2010. So the main thing to know in general is the overall planet uh, is just getting hotter and hotter. Now, uh, you can have local cooling for a month or two uh, in, in you know, small regions, as, as uh, uh, the eastern half of the United States has seen um, over uh, you know, much of the last several weeks. But one of the very basic predictions of climate science is that it's going to warm a lot faster in the Arctic than anywhere else. And, in fact, it's been warming about twice as fast uh, in the Arctic. So it is a very big story because, uh, unfortunately, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic um, because you have the Greenland ice sheet, uh, which has, you know, it's like a mile thick um, right. layer of ice, uh, something that's, uh, you know, uh, bigger than Mexico. And, and as the Arctic warms up, we're seeing accelerated warming, uh, melting of the ice sheet. So that affects sea level rise. So, you know, it is a big deal. Obviously, Alaska is, is far away uh, for most Americans, but it is kind of the canary in the coal mine 
uh, of what's coming. Do you think that there is a problem with how we talk about this in the media? We always kind of let climate change off the hook. We say, well, we can't tell if every weather incident is really climate related. Um, but it, we see so many of these incidents and they're so dramatic. And it's not just, a, you know, Alaska itself. There was a town in Siberia um, where it had a high temperature that was 64 degrees above its previous high ever. Uh, that's that's crazy. I mean, weather guys were, were tweeting out, how often do you see a high temperature that's 64 degrees above normal high? No, well, and, and it's not, of course, just uh, warming. Uh, we're seeing when you warm up the planet, you uh, heat up the oceans and put more water vapor into the uh, air, and therefore you would expect tropical storms uh, to dump more water, more intense rainstorms, and and. Uh, of course, we're seeing that, and of course, uh, we saw with uh, with Harvey. You know what we saw in Houston was literally uh, the the uh, a once in twenty five thousand year, you know, a rainstorm. I mean, it literally set the all time record uh, in the continental United States for uh, for rain ever. And um, so, yes, we are seeing extremes getting pushed into more and more extreme, and it is those extremes which do the most damage, just as, you know, it's the most destructive hurricanes that do the most damage. It's the most, uh, you know, intense rainstorms. It's the worst heat waves. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think we, we're now at the point where climate change is, is really pushing us to extremes that that no human being has ever seen before. Do you have some ideas about the way the media should talk about this? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the media should do two things. One, explain, you know, that the long-term trend is, you know, basic physics. You put more heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere, you're going to trap more heat, and the oceans and the atmosphere are going to warm up, and that's what scientists have, have observed. So there's no... You know, there there is a great deal uh, of certainty in uh, the scientific community that this long-term trend is real uh, and that it's caused by humans. Now, you know, I think it's also important to bring this home to people where they live in 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 local communities. And I, you know, and you're in the Chicago area. Certainly, Chicago over the past decade or so has seen some very brutal heat waves. Uh, not to mention some very brutal deluges. So I think, uh, you know, whereas uh, parts of, you know, California and the Southwest have seen, you know, record-smashing droughts. And, and it's, we, in fact, we often go from drought to flooding and back to drought, this kind of weather whiplash. So, you know, we're, we're now at the point where climate change is affecting people uh, uh, on a regular basis. And I... I wrote a primer for uh, Oxford University Press, Climate Change, What Everyone Needs to Know, where I go through, you know, what the latest science is and what it means for individuals uh, in terms of choosing, you know, where you might want to retire. Uh, a lot of people on the East Coast retire in South Florida, but, you know, South Florida is going to get hotter and sea levels are going to rise. And I expect, you know, in, in the coming decades, people are actually going to be leaving South Florida and, and finding higher ground and safer places to be. 
I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Rahm. He's a physicist. He's a climate expert. He's editor of the blog uh, climateprogress.org. And, uh, you know, we noticed you were on uh, Tucker Carlson. You do a lot of media and talk about this. Yeah. Uh, you were on a couple recently, and um, Tucker was interested in Davos and uh, the people yeah. flying there for climate change. And, and here's the, the open of your exchange with Tucker Carlson. President Trump just boarded Air Force One, which is heading to Davos, a resort town in Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum that just happened about 60 seconds ago. One of the biggest topics at the forum, of course, is global warming, but that comes with a huge helping of irony dripping all over it. The climate cognoscenti of Davos are arriving in more than a thousand private jets. How could that be? Joe Rahm is the founding editor of Climate Progress, and he joins us tonight. Joe, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ted. So, I mean, it's one of those stories I, I, I couldn't resist. It seems to me if you really believe that global warming is an existential threat to humanity, life on Earth, you probably wouldn't be flying around in a private plane, would you? Well, I'm glad we're in agreement that climate change is an existential threat to humanity. And well, I'm, I'm not sure that it is, but the people at Davos are sure of it. So why are they flying in these planes? Well, do you believe that global warming is real and a present danger? Because well, if you don't, what's I, the point of I discussing I don't know, this? but I'll tell you why. So there's your exchange with uh, Tucker Carlson, yeah. and you were, uh, didn't quite woo him into saying that climate change was reality. He, he was into the irony, and he, he wasn't sure about climate change, he was saying. Yeah, well, I think those who've watched Tucker know he's a very brilliant uh, debater. Uh, he, he generally prefers the, de- the debate and things like, you know, irony to, to getting into these important questions. But, you know, the entire world, literally every single country uh, in the world, the major, you know, 190 plus nations uh, have agreed that not only is the science real, but it's of such great concern that they've all committed to start uh, changing their direction of emissions and cutting uh, fossil fuel consumption over a period of decades. And and literally, this country now stands alone in the world as the only one to say, no, we're not going to abide by the commitments that we made two years ago. Literally, the last two holdouts were Nicaragua and Syria, and Syria in in December just said, you know, hey, with even with our civil war, we've been suffering from droughts and other things, and and so we want to do our part. So, you know, I, like I said, the entire world outside of let's say the Beltway, Washington D.C. Beltway, uh, sees climate change happening. Uh, you know, accepts what the scientific uh, community has been saying for over a quarter century that human carbon pollution is the cause, and that we need to take action. Well, did, did Tucker have a point about flying in airplanes, that, that uh, really people who are big uh, climate advocates, uh, they do fly around in airplanes a lot? I did have a uh, climate scientist on, Peter Kalmus, a few weeks ago, and he is someone who has decided not to fly in airplanes, and he, was, he wrote an editorial in The Guardian to encourage fellow climate scientists not to all go to this big earth science thing, and uh, they're all going 25,000 people are going to fly to this thing. And he's like, he says, well, we've got to stop if we're going to really drop our carbon output. We should – the easiest way for big emitters to do it, it one of the big ways is, is to stop flying. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you heard the, you heard the whole exchange, you know, I, I think 
there's no question that private jets uh, in particular generate maybe 10 times as much pollution as a regular uh, flight on a, on a commercial airline. And I think generally scientists fly commercial. Uh, it, look, there's no question over a period of decades, we are going to have to either get uh, air travel to reduce its emissions, which people are very much working on, uh, and, you know, maybe not have so many big conferences. I think that, you know, my point was that in the particular case of Davos, all the emissions uh, for Davos added up to about one second of annual global emissions. Um, I think, yes, uh, that, uh, like I said, I'm not a big fan of people flying in on their private jets to such meetings. But I will say, uh, as I said, uh, uh, you know, to Tucker, that, that every other country in the world, the, the, those, you know, uh, the rich and powerful who go to Davos, at least they're pushing their countries to take action to reduce emissions at a, at a, at a national and global scale. Uh, whereas, you know, this country and frankly, Fox News uh, um, uh, and Donald Trump are trying to persuade people this problem isn't real and we shouldn't take action. So I think the greater hypocrisy is 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 to have Fox News, you know, try to, uh, you know, debate with anybody uh, about whether climate science is real or not. I, I uh, you know, want to add that uh Ultimately, everyone needs to do their part, but we're at a stage now where the job of scientists is to go around and persuade people that here's what the science says, we need to take action. You know, there, there's clearly emerging now because of the Internet and, and, and uh, you know, uh, the ability to do remote meetings and, and teleconferencing has gotten better and better. That, that, yes, I think you're seeing, particularly with the younger generation, you are seeing people buying fewer cars and people traveling less by car. So, you know, I am certainly hopeful that, that in the coming years we will uh, address the transportation sector better. Uh, in the near term, what we need to do is focus on energy efficiency, solar and wind, which have come down dramatically in price and which are sweeping the world. And and frankly, only Donald Trump is trying to to kill the clean energy jobs industry, uh, whereas countries, you know, from Germany to India to China are trying to become the world leader in clean energy jobs. And I'm sure lots of people heard about the solar tariffs that uh, the Trump administration put on. Um, the Trump administration's also, and you were writing about it in your thinkprogress.org uh, blog, about uh, cutting the energy department's $2 billion energy efficiency and renewable energy program. Uh, they want to cut it by a 72 percent. Uh, this is an opening volley in negotiations. But, every, but for the last two years, he's come in and said, well, we should, this is the thing we should cut. Yeah, no, it's, it's really uh, very, very counterproductive. I actually helped run the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy back in the 1990s. And we were working on uh, hybrid vehicles, electric cars, advanced batteries, uh, LED lighting, uh, cheaper solar and wind, all of these things that are now sweeping the country and lowering people's energy bills and making possible, you know, uh, all these amazing advances from Tesla uh, uh, on 
to uh, that that's what, you know, research and development investment does. So cutting research and development investment is like saying, I don't want to have, uh, you know, future technologies that, that America will be able to use and sell to the rest of the world. I'm going to let other countries do that. So it's, you know, there's nothing that makes less sense if you care about jobs or the environment than cutting research and development into clean energy technologies. And as you say, that's what the Trump administration wants to do. Uh, the solar tariff basically raises the price of uh, solar panels, uh, since we import you know, virtually all of the solar panels. And ironically, as I wrote, that is going to cost jobs mainly in the red states, because it is the southern states in particular uh, from, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, uh, those states that are poised to see the biggest growth in, uh, in installing cheap solar. So if you raise the price, you're mostly going to be hurting, uh, you know, people who, who voted uh, uh, in states that Trump won. And China, in the meantime, invests an incredible amount in this kind of thing. Uh, you cited a figure of $70 billion a year in your blog. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, the, the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy in this country has a $2 billion budget. The, the, the Chinese uh, 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 early last year uh, announced that they were going to spend $70 billion a year for the next five years just helping renewables. So, you know, I, I, I think that China understands what the future is. The future is the entire world has committed to get slowly take, replace fossil fuels with low-carbon energy, solar, wind, electric cars, and, and the like. And whichever country is the leader in those technologies is literally going to get the lion's share of what is going to be tens of millions of jobs. So... Uh, and, and by the way, China's not the only country. Germany uh, has has invested heavily, particularly in solar. Uh, the Danes have invested heavily, particularly in, in wind. You're seeing big investments in electric cars in Norway and also, you know, India and China. So uh, this is a this is really a fight for who is going to be uh, own the future. And, you know, this uh, Donald Trump has said we need to invest more yeah. in the technologies of the 19th century. Yeah. Literally, coal. And, you know, I, I have always said the country should help coal miners uh, and, and, and work hard to, you know, to help right. any displaced worker. But the future is the future. And, and you know, you, you can't yeah. bring back the 19th century. Dr. Joseph Rahm is a physicist and climate expert. He's editor of Think Progress uh, blog, uh, climateprogress.org. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk with Ruth Goring. We've talked with her over the years, and I consider a good friend on Columbia issues, which she's advocated for for many years. Uh, Ruth was actually 
raised in Colombia and has written a new children's book. We're going to talk about it. It's Adriana's Angels, and it's about two guardian angels that help a young girl relocate from Colombia to Chicago. And it's great to talk with you, Ruth Goring. How are you? Thank you. I'm so glad to be here again, Jerome. I wanted to ask you a bit about your recent trip to Colombia. You went back with your family, and you were raised initially in Colombia. Your father was a missionary in Colombia, and you lived in a really remote southern town. You're telling me it was 2,000 people when you lived there. Now it's a town of 60,000 people, but you went back for the first time in 50 years. We did. It was four of my siblings and me, and uh, we were the ones who were older um, and who actually lived in that area. One other sibling um, was not able to come because of health problems. But there were five of us, and we had been talking for a few years about this dream trip of actually returning to the places where we grew up in the South. And we had been told for many years that it was not safe for us to travel back there. And so it had been that long, five decades, since we had been in the city of Pasto and the town of Puerto Asís. And when you're talking about being safe to travel there, the peace accords are working? Is that, was it kidnapping that you were afraid of? Or what kind of thing would be bad? Well, the FARC, which is the larger group of left-wing guerrillas who are the ones that have signed the recent peace accord, did control large parts of the south of the country, especially in the years after we moved away. And so we were told that they were likely to kidnap Americans that they saw. So it was just not a good idea for us to go. And your siblings decided once they heard about the peace accords that this would be the opportunity to go. Yes. The peace accords meant that the FARC has um, demobilized, turned over their weapons, brought child soldiers they had recruited who were still part of their forces and brought them to a program where um, they are being helped. And the idea is to sort of um, de-brainstorm them, I guess, and just get them used to civilian life. So far, some people have doubts about it. But from what I can tell, the agreements the FARC and the Colombian government came together on are really being implemented. So people that we talked to talked about the FARC as a problem in the past, in especially the town of Puerto Asís, but not as a current problem. Tell us something about the town. What's it like? The town was originally an oil town. Well, originally, I should say, when I was there. And I'm not sure how long it had existed before the Texaco Oil Company came in and was prospecting. But they were there by the time we came in the early 1960s. So it was a pretty rough place, not in terms of violence uh, for us at all when we were children, but just in terms of infrastructure. And we grew up with outhouses. And my dad actually dug wells for our family and then... um, put in pumps so that we could get water out of the ground easily. And um, we have great fun laughing about how we would take turns. That he, bought a, he built a shower stall, and so we would take turns um, pulling the pump back and forth while the other person uh, took a shower inside the stall. And we would just scream because the water was so cold coming up from, from the earth. Yeah, so we lived with candles. We burned holes in mosquito nets because we were a big reader family, and we had to have a rule, no candles under mosquito nets. Um, It was very primitive and wonderful in a lot of ways.
What kind of emotions came up with uh, all your family members and siblings when they see this place again? We we all cried a lot. Um, sit there sobbing, but we had tears in our eyes frequently. And sometimes it was because of memories in a particular place. The house that my father built, we were able to go into it. It's now part of a complex of a Catholic church, and um, it's pretty run down. They use the downstairs for some meetings, but they mostly use the rest of the building just for storage. But it's a really good structure, and so it's still there. And so we walked all around it and talked about so many things that we remembered. And then sometimes we cried because we were in conversation with people that um, we had known when we were children. There was a whole group of people that traveled from different parts of the Putumayo, which is the state or province that Puerto Asís is part of, who came from those different towns. And one person even came from Quito, Ecuador, where she has been living for many years. Um, but she was one of our playmates as children. And it was so moving to hear their stories and things that happened even when we were young that we had never known about because we were children and, and our parents didn't tell us. So did these people have hard lives? They had long encounters with what was going on in the country? One man had been present when a motorcycle bomb went off on a main street in Puerto Asís. Um, and the people right next to him got killed. So he was just inexplicably. I mean, we would call it miraculously. His life was saved. But other people, mostly women that I talked to who were my friends when I was young, I heard stories of family abuse. I heard stories of spouse abuse. I heard stories of um, of one father who gave both of his daughters in different situations basically into slavery. And it was my father who helped them escape and come to live with us. And I had no clue when I was a child. I just thought these were some of the many people that my parents know. And so, and you know, many people came and lived with us at different times. But these particular friends, um, they were our playmates. That's what we knew them as. And we had no idea that there had been this wrenching drama in their lives that did affect them for many years. One of them um, was later in an abusive marriage and was uh, just able to get out after about 20 years. I even heard her story because I remarked on how full of smiles she is. She has great peace in her demeanor. So she wanted to tell me what had happened before and why when she was a child, she was pretty serious and even looked angry a lot of the time. It was so moving that pretty much all of us around the table that day were in tears. So 
I'm talking with poet and activist Ruth Goring. We're talking about her upbringing in Colombia. She went back to the village she was living in uh, 50 years ago and visited there. And we're going to talk uh, about her book, Adriana's Angels, in a second here. Your father, you and your family, you left this uh, small village in part because of uh, a threat? We were told that we were leaving to move to Medellin, a large city farther north, because my father had made an agreement with the Universidad de Antioquia, the large state university there, that he would start a master's program in counseling psychology. And he was interested in doing outreach among middle-class Colombians who were a very small part of the population then. The economic realities have really shifted since then, so the middle class is much larger now. And for us, it was great because we were going to a place where we would have electricity and running water And we would have peers that were studying like we were. And we could think of a lot of pluses. Medellin's climate is easier. It's farther up in the mountains. And so it's not super hot in the lowlands like Puerto Asís is. But years later, I want to say it was only maybe 20 years ago or so that I learned that my father also had found out that he was on the hit list of the FARC. And the reason was that he had helped somebody who had asked him for help, um, who was escaping, who was deserting from the FARC ranks. And they did not look upon that kindly. And he actually had a close encounter, um, a close escape when he was in Bogota at one point. So um, moving to the city where the FARC were not in control was also a safety measure for us. And so, you know, I realized in thinking about all the displaced people in Colombia, as you know, it has the largest number of internally displaced people in the world. It's up at about 7 million now after all these years of war. And that actually is continuing even though, despite the peace agreement, because there are other groups that are displacing people, what they call the successor paramilitary groups. But I realized in thinking about this that Adriana in my story is displaced. We'll talk about that in a minute. But my family had experienced um, a small measure of displacement and the fact that we couldn't go back. That was part of the um, the hunger that we had that was not really satisfied until now, that we could go back and be in those places where we were children. And I'm the second oldest of my siblings. And when we were in Puerto Asís, the first night we were driving around and the people in the car didn't know where all the houses were. And I said, I think it's the street. And people said, no, no, that's not it. And the next day, there were folks that showed us where it was. And indeed, I was right. It was like my body had retained this memory of places. And the same thing happened to me when we were in Pasto, the city where we first lived in Colombia, which is also toward the south, but it's more mountainous. I had a little bit of time to walk around by myself the first day that I got there. And I found the Catholic church that was a couple of blocks from our house and the place where I learned to ride a bike. And the next day, we went with some other folks and they confirmed where our old house was. And it was just... I don't know. It's sort of like your body just longs for those places where it used to be. (laughs) And it felt so wonderful to find them again, even though, of course, it didn't look the same. It's body memory. It's something you can't uh, get out of yourself, I imagine. it's. I wouldn't have been able to draw a map on paper, but my feet and my body did find those places. Yeah. Well, it reminds you of what uh, real displacement must be for people, the, the kind of pain that they go through when 
people say, I don't want to leave this place and they've got to leave it. Yes, I think I understand that more than I ever did. How that part of you is just left alone and left hanging because for displaced people, they usually can't go back. So it was a very moving part of um, this trip for me. Coming up after the break, we'll have more with Ruth Goring. We'll talk about displacement and her children's book about it, Adriana's Angels. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Ruth Goring about her trip to Columbia. She's helped us with our Columbia coverage on the program over the years. Ruth was actually raised in Columbia. She's a poet and writer and editor and activist, and she has just come out with a children's book. This is uh, after a lifetime of literary events. You have gone children's book. What happened here? How did you come to write Adriana's Angels? Well, I wrote it in stages. I have had a beginning manuscript of it around for a number of years, probably since sometime in the 90s. But it wasn't until I met a family here in Chicago that had had to flee Columbia because the father received death threats. And they had connections, folks that could help them come here and apply for political asylum. It wasn't until I met a little girl in that family that I thought back to the story and I thought, this is the protagonist of this story. So I changed the story around not to follow her life exactly, but to connect with that central experience that she had had of displacement. And the story is really a spiritual story. It's about how God takes care of the child through ups and downs of every child's life, but also this big, terrifying event of having to flee. There's two guardian angels, and they are watching her and finagling things. They are intervening when necessary, and mostly they're messengers who are speaking to her in disguise. You know, she doesn't ever see them. The reader gets to see them with these beautiful illustrations that the illustrator Erica Mesa put together. But they speak to her a lot in her sleep, and that comes from Colombia, too. Why do I say that? Because I, I learned about the importance and the healing power of dreams and sleep through being a parent to my daughter, Claire, who, by the way, is now a missionary in Colombia. She was born there. I adopted her when she was a year old. She had been severely malnourished and neglected for the first six months of life. And so even when she became chubby and healthy, there was always a lot of pain and turmoil inside of her. And it came out frequently in just temper tantrums and inexplicable rages. But we had a routine of bedtime reading and singing and praying. And her guard would come down and she would sometimes talk about something that she had done wrong during the day and that she felt bad about. And she would always ask me, 
I mean, you know, when she got old enough to be able to make requests like this, she would always ask me to pray that she would have good dreams. And she would ask me often to sing the Swedish Lutheran hymn, Children of the Heavenly Father. I learned all six stanzas of that hymn (laughs) because I didn't want to just sing the same one over and over again. But it's about how God never stops watching over his children. And that was something that my little child clung to. And it really helped her to regulate herself and to have hope for herself, though she often felt desperate. And it has been beautiful over the years to see the healing happen, something that she has sought, you know, through all the normal ways, therapy, and just trying to make good choices. But now she can understand children who have suffered because she herself did, and um, she was a difficult child, and so she works with children, poor children. She's just moved to Bogota to continue her ministry there. you wanted to get Adriana's Angels, your children's book, into the hands of people who were in a similar situation. You wanted to help some people. I did, and I'm so grateful that my publisher, Sparkhouse Family, was up for publishing the book in Spanish as well as English when I sent in the proposal. And then uh, one of my sisters said, oh, it would be so great if it were published in time to take it to Colombia. The actual release date was September 12th, but they moved things to get it printed early. And I did a, a fundraiser online and was able to raise enough money between that and a donation from my church to take 60 copies of this beautiful book, Los Ángeles de Adriana, which is the title in Spanish, to Colombia and give them away while I was there. And mostly they went to people who work with displaced children, which is another reason to make me cry, um, especially to see some of the pictures. Sometimes it was just fortuitous like this. There's a young woman uh, who was a cashier in the department store that my sisters talked to um, when they were in Medellin before I got there. And they learned that she was part of a a literary arts group in this neighborhood that has been just devastated by a big fire recently. So her group is doing programs with the children who have been, you know, again, displaced by this terrible fire. It wasn't a political event, just a calamity. And somebody mentioned my book to her and she said, oh, we would use it. We would use it with the children. And she said, I want to write books for children. And so I would love to see it, you know, for that reason, too. 
So we went back to the store and tracked her down, and I gave her a copy, and she's been sending me photos since then of children reading the book and herself showing it to children. And uh, likewise, my daughter has uh, had an event recently where displaced children in Bogota have been looking at it, and they had so much to say as they looked at the pictures and talked about the story that they ran out of time. So, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, very, very meaningful to me that the story could be bringing comfort to these children. How does it work in the on the Chicago end of the spectrum? And the story, Adriana is a girl who gets displaced to Chicago. And do you get the book into the hands of people who've experienced this in Chicago? Well, now I have copies of both the English and Spanish versions in my home. And if you would like to purchase a copy or copies to donate to a refugee agency, then that is an option here. And so I'll be raising money that way. And I might do another online fundraiser to do the same thing. Because the story is not sectarian. A Muslim family could uh, read this to their children without feeling like their uh, theology is being violated because it's really about God's love and about God's care for us. And um, any of us who believe in God at all, that's what we want our children to know, isn't it? So there are different ways that we're hoping to spread it around here in Chicago. Um, the Society of Children Books Writers and Illustrators has just been doing uh, a donation drive of books for um, a couple of organizations that work with refugee families in other parts of the country. And so I sent off a few copies to them. This is something that neither my editor at Sparkhouse nor I had any idea at the time when they said yes to the book, that the refugee program would become controversial here in the United States, and that the government would be scaling it back, and that the DREAM Act would be set for cancellation, and that we would all be thinking about the displaced and the migrants among us, and all of us actually are that in, in one way or another, aren't we? But there are people who've experienced really difficult things who have just come recently or who are waiting to come. So having a book about a refugee child at this time, you know, it feels serendipitous. It feels like maybe, um, maybe God meant it to be. Well, I congratulate you on the book. It's wonderful to see, and I'm glad. There's something precious about telling stories to children that are helping shape their world, and uh, I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> Thank you, Jerome. I hope that it's the first of a number of books. That's my intention for the coming years. Ruth Goring is a poet. She's an activist on Columbia, and she is the author of the new children's book, Adriana's Angels. And if people want more information, what do they do? Well, um, they could email me. My email is my name, ruthgoring at gmail.com. So that's pretty easy. Thanks, Ruth. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Quiero despedirme con una palabra en español de esperanza. Eh, amigas y amigos, eh, nuestra Colombia va para adelante. La paz, eh, todavía hay mucho que construir, pero vamos para adelante. Y yo voy a pasar mucho más tiempo en Colombia en los años que vienen. Y um, les quiero animar eh, con, con eh, el país tan hermoso y, y listo para, para terminar con la violencia. 
completamente. Adiós y muchas gracias. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our World History Minute with historian John Schmidt. John is the author of On This Day in Chicago History. He works a global beat for this program. And today we are going to find out something um, I think probably a lot of people wonder. What happened to Trotsky when he went into exile? And today we find out. Well, Vladimir Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Union, died early in 1924. And Leon Trotsky seemed to be his natural successor. He was a war hero and a very charismatic figure. But before Lenin's body was even cold, Joseph Stalin was outmaneuvering Trotsky. Trotsky and Stalin were members of the Communist Party Politburo, a group of seven men who ran the country. Trotsky was traveling when Lenin died. After sending Trotsky the news, Stalin arranged to have the funeral pushed up a day so Trotsky would miss it and not be in any of the pictures from the funeral. And over the next two years, behind the scenes, Trotsky and Stalin battled it out in the Politburo. Trotsky was a Marxist idealist. He believed the Communist Party should try to spread the worldwide revolution as soon as possible. Stalin argued that the party should build up its power in the Soviet Union first. Now, here's where personalities enter the mix. Trotsky was, as I said, brilliant and charismatic. The other men in the Politburo were overawed by them, and uh, they thought that Stalin would be easier to control. See, Stalin was a small man. He was quiet and unassuming, and people usually underestimated him. Years later, during the early 1960s, there was a, a Broadway play about Stalin's early years. It was called The Passion of Joseph D. And the actor who played Stalin, young Stalin, was uh, Peter Falk who, uh, of course, went on to play the uh, quiet, unassuming, underrated TV detective Columbo. Well, anyway, Stalin built up his allies in the Politburo. Little by little, Stalin began to cut Trotsky down to size. In 1925, Trotsky was removed from his job as war minister. In 1926, Trotsky was removed from the Politburo. In 1927, Trotsky was kicked out of the Communist Party. Now, even though Stalin's propaganda against Trotsky was relentless, Trotsky was still popular with much of the public. And he'd been one of those leaders in the 1917 revolution when nobody knew who Stalin was outside the inner circle. So on this January 31st, 1928, Stalin had Trotsky exiled from the capital in Moscow. And he sent him to a remote city in the eastern provinces. Well, with Trotsky out of the public eye, Stalin consolidated his power. And then he turned against his former allies in the Politburo and he removed them. And the unlucky ones were shot. Well, Trotsky himself was eventually deported from the Soviet Union. But from his new home in Mexico, he continued to agitate against Stalin. So in 1940, Stalin sent an assassin to Mexico who killed Trotsky with a pickaxe to the head. The exile of Leon Trotsky, it started on January 31st, 1928, ended in 1940 with a pickaxe to the head. Ow! Yeah, yeah. Trotsky was um, had made friends with Diego Rivera and uh, Frida Kahlo down there, and um, they were uh, helping shelter him down there. But it didn't stop uh, didn't stop Stalin's agent. <laughs> <laughs>
John Schmidt, our World History Minute, January 31st, 1928, The Exile of Leon Trotsky. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll hear about an upcoming constitutional referendum in Ireland that would ease up on abortion restrictions. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance, Mike Gilmore for engineering, and Daniel Mosisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.